You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group. www.americantheatre.org Good afternoon. Welcome to the final off script of 2021. Uh, I'm Rob Weiner, Kent, the Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine. This is our podcast on all things theatrical. It's also Facebook chat, as you can see right now, if you're tuning in Facebook. Uh, I'm Rob Weiner, Kent, the Editor-in-Chief. My pronouns are he, him. I'm, I'm coming to you actually from the lands of the Maspeth and Rockaway in Queens. My background is not that, and I'll explain that in a second. Uh, and I'm here with... Uh, J.R. Pierce, the Associate Editor here at American Theatre. My pronouns are he, him. And I am on the lands of the, Pot- the Potawatomi, the Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria, uh, also known as Chicago. Awesome. And this is our, our year-end sort of roundup. And to help us uh, look back on this year, which was not the year we expected it would be, I don't think it's fair to say, uh, in, a few, in a few minutes, we'll talk to uh, Jesse Green of the New York Times and Lily Janik of the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, we, you know, we often like to have guests who work in the theater field to help us sum up and look at the larger view. As we've done a couple of times, we have a critic on Hilton Owls on one time and Maya Phillips and David Sean Chavez a couple couple episodes ago. So we always like to talk to our colleagues. Well, not always. We often like to check in with our colleagues about uh, you know the view f- from from their seats. In this case, we're lucky to have two of the, the best critics in, in the country and on different different sides of the country too. So a lot to talk about there. Uh, we have we're doing this once a month right now because of different scheduling things. So we have a lot of stories we want to just mention. Also want to mention we're published by a theater communications group and we rely on your support uh, to, to continue to what we do in American theater. So please go to the website. And if you're not a member, join. And if you contribute any, anything to our, to our efforts, that would be great. It would help us help us do what we do and even do it better if you can kick in some money. So uh, I'll just jump right in uh, to say behind me is the Irish Arts Center, the new lobby of the brand spanking new $60 million building on the, on the upper, not quite the Upper West Side, Upper Hell's Kitchen, uh, it, it, where they had a space for years, um, uh, founded in the 70s around the corner, like in a little low ceiling tenement uh, uh, space, which is a kind of a cozy, wonderful space for music and some spoken word. This is an amazing uh, a venue for all kinds of things, including theater. Uh, some Ender Walsh is coming there uh, later or next next later this season. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it it's a wonderful space, a wonderful addition to the uh, to the cultural scene. I wrote a piece about it. just went up today. Uh, I'll just mention um, another space I know pretty well, and I'm fascinated to see what they did with it. But I didn't wasn't able to be there in person. Was Pasadena Playhouse did Head Over Heels, uh, a new version of that play, which had a sort of bumpy ride from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival about six, seven years ago. I wrote about it then. Jeff Witte was the sort of uh, creative spirit behind it and he somehow parted ways or was parted with uh, before it got to Broadway. The Broadway production was sort of groundbreaking in uh, its gender uh, representation. Had I think the first trans artist to, to originate a role or something like that on Broadway. I don't know the exact wording, but it was, it was a, it was a fun romp. And now they're doing it at the Pasadena Playhouse, which is an old theater. Uh, stodgy would not be the word I, I would use, but it's very old school, you know, 
it's the official state theater of California. And what they've done is they, they've built like a dance floor in it and they've got uh, uh, Leia Delaria and uh, Thunderfuck 5000, I think is the, uh, the drag queen. Um, no, do I have the right, the, the, the name? Thunderfuck is in is in is in her name. Anyway, it's it's an amazing cast. I wrote about that. That was fun. Sam Pinkleton and um, Jenny Coons directed it. Uh, they're a pair, a sort of co-directing team to watch. Uh, I'll just also mention that we had a sort of package of stories come together about theaters of color uh, and the funding picture for them. Um, it's a theme that we've we've hit many times before, and it's not not new to our field. The funding disparity between uh, predominantly white theaters and theaters of color and the thorny uh, issues around that. One of the stories is about a program that TCG created called Thrive to try and just get money directly to theaters of color, which is both celebrated in the story and sort of critique because it's a, it's a complicated, uh, complicated space um, with some issues of, you know, colonial tokenism and, and representation. So, I highly recommend those stories and some sort of a funding package. I don't know, if, did we give it a name, JR? Yes, I think it was, it, it had a name, the funding package. Um, but we'll put the link in the, uh, in the, in the Facebook. Yeah, we, we called it Vibrant, Vital, and Underfunded. Yes, that, right. That's exactly, that we, were, we, were, we were riffing on a, or, or adapting or paraphrasing a August Wilson quote from The Ground in Which I Stand, which is that theaters of color, in his case, I think he was talking about black theaters, are vital, vibrant, but underfunded. And uh, that definitely was still a picture all these years later. JR, there was some other stuff that you you wrote about and edited. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, first, it's Alaska Thunderfuck 5000. So we were That's close. Right. Sorry, Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> Can't forget the Alaska part. Uh, yeah. And then I wrote about, well, an, another in a series of articles on streaming productions and virtual productions, uh, this time focusing on live streaming, like simulcasting. So people at home can view the production at the same time as people in person, uh, which is something I find fascinating, especially because I've written in the past how much I enjoy the live feeling, like watching something live from home versus seeing something pre-recorded. So I talked with the folks at Cherry Arts uh, in Ithaca, as well as the folks behind Second Stage's Clyde's uh, Broadway production about how they're both going about simulcasting these productions with an in-person audience and an at-home audience. And seeing that, yeah, from a small theater like Cherry Arts all the way to Broadway, this idea is scalable. So there's really no excuse for not trying it. <laughs> if you if you are interested in that work, which I think we all should be with, you know, the, the variants still coming out. And uh, what Cherry Arts found is that, yeah, there are still people who aren't comfortable going back into spaces. So uh, having that option allowed a lot of their ticket buyers to continue to see their productions, even if they weren't capable or willing to come in person. Uh, And then I also worked with Nicole Hertvik in DC, uh, who wrote about DC's Shakespeare Theater Company and its leader, Simon Godwin, uh, who is kind of changing how the audience there thinks about what classics mean, uh, both in terms of representation and expanding uh, the, the canon to include, to make sure it includes names like James Baldwin, but also so it can include things like a new musical based on Britney Spears songs. Uh, so uh, Nicole did a great job kind of 
showcasing how uh, Simon's vision really incorporates a wide breadth of, of artists and minds that go beyond just uh, highlighting Shakespeare's work. And then the, the other piece I wanted to touch on would be Ashley Griffin's piece talking about how releasing a musical's album early on in the development process or the production process can actually help audience, audiences like build an audience base for a new musical and get people excited about it before it even hits the stage. I know uh, like my favorite example is that is when uh, Hamilton dropped on NPR and it was the only way I would ever hear Hamilton's music until uh, it came out on Disney plus or came to Chicago, which was years later. Uh, So the value of that, uh, I think Ashley does a great job highlighting and pointing to examples like be more chill where it actually helped the show get licensed to that kind of excitement that a, an album built. And then I'll toss it back to you to talk a bit more about the develop, well, the end of the development process, at least. Oh, you're muted, Rob. Sorry about that. Yeah, I'm gonna go quickly through these because we have, we have a few to get through. Um, sort of in the critical space, I guess you could call it, uh, we have a wonderful piece by Jenna Clark Embry who used to run the talkbacks at the signature. In fact, we did a, we did a whole like sort of season of, of events with them, but they weren't quite talkbacks. They were just events of, of sort of panel discussions. Um, so she's a pro in this space and she wrote a, a wonderful piece about rethinking the talkback and her, her headline, everything in moderation. Brilliant headline. Um, it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's, it's kind of unexpected an unexpected angle, but it makes a lot of sense once you read it. So I highly recommend that. Um, and then we had a, a sort of a blockbuster piece, I would say. It's definitely, it's already, I think, among our top 10 of the year that ran last year from a wonderful cr- critical voice, Christian Lewis, uh, who is best known probably to read our readers for writing the piece uh, about Tootsie and transphobia uh, a year or two ago. Um, they checked in on this st- basically as a state of gender and sexuality on Broadway. It's a broad topic, but the obvious inciting um, incident is the production of Mrs. Doubtfire, which in many ways they, they make a case is uh, probably even more transphobic in some of its tropes than um, Tootsie. Again, they make a good case. They also look at um, the new production of Company uh, with the gender changed uh, Bobby in the lead and the, the ways, the opportunities they, that they, they feel were missed to make it a queer, a genuinely queer and up-to-date um, musical for 2021. And finally, uh, Jagged Little Pill, which is, uh, they've written more in depth about some of the issues of that show before, but they touch on that. So they also wrote a wonderful piece for us about assassins and the use of gun guns, or the downplayed use of guns in that, which I think, again, these are all arguable, all critical pieces are arguable, but I think uh, Christian makes a wonderful case um, and it's an interesting piece. And again, it's not an angle I would have thought of. Um, briefly, David Cody, wonderful uh, critic for the New York Observer, formerly of Time Out, uh, gave us a report from London Theater, a pretty mixed report. Um, he did not catch uh, COVID as his colleague Laura Collins Hughes did when she went to London recently. And speaking of London, uh, we had a wonderful uh, review from Justin Sharon of, of memoirs by playwright David Story really undersung talent and uh, director David Land, um, who is at the, I think the Young Vic. Um, not to race through it too much, but we had a couple about leadership as well. 
JR. Yeah, uh, Daniela Ignacio, also based in DC, uh, talked to the new artistic director of Mosaic Theater Company, Reginald L. Douglas, uh, just talking about his career that led him to this point, as well as how he intends to strengthen the bond between the theater and the local DC community. Uh, and then Calendra Smith looked at the trend that's going on around the country of sort of shared leadership models, whether that's co-artistic directors or a rotating artistic directorship or adding uh, associate artistic directors to, to the leadership model and how that's been incorporated in the country and the potential it has. Yeah, and I just finally, a few, just a few more pieces we'll just mention really briefly. Uh, uh, TCG, you might know, TCG, uh, our publisher also publishes books and they have a new edition of Sarah Rule's Eurydice out, which has just turned into a, a wonderful opera. More on that in a second. But this is an afterword to the new afterword that Sarah has written, uh, kind of for, for people based on a lot of the questions she's had and, and thoughts she's had about productions, because it's been very produced around the country. Um, and, and that's a pretty fascinating piece, actually. Um, I remember that play. It's been around for a while. And uh, it's interesting to touch base with it again. Speaking of touching base with it again, it was adapted into an opera by Matthew O'Coin. I'm not sure you pronounce that, that name, the composer, and director Mary Zimmerman. And we just had a editorial contributor who worked with us for a little this summer, whose real passion, she did a good job getting into theater, but a real passion was opera. So she wrote a piece about uh, theater directors uh, working in an opera, including Bart Scher and Mary Zimmerman. And one of the pieces she, she talked about was Eurydice. Um, so her piece about about opera, theater directors doing opera, those are, that's also worth, worth, worth looking at. It would be remiss, I would be remiss in not mentioning one of the great losses uh, that we experienced in the past couple of weeks. And that was of Stephen Sondheim. I don't know, I'm gonna get emotional about it, just even just mentioning it. In any case, uh, it's almost too much for me to take in. Uh, uh, I, one of my jobs when someone major in the theater dies is to think about who should I ask to write a tribute. We, tend, we don't tend to do roundup obituaries and recorded obituaries. We tend to find a colleague or a peer or a friend or a lover or somebody to write the tribute. When we had, when Harvey Schmidt died, Tom Jones wrote the tribute for us. It was wonderful. Um, in this case, I found Janine Tesori, arguably one of sometimes most illustrious successors uh, to write a beautiful tribute to him. I wrote one of my own just to sort of get it off my chest. Um, I don't think that's the best segue, but it is a segue I can I can say to our guests today who also both wrote wonderful tributes to Stephen Sondheim, Jesse Green of the New York Times, the lead critic there, and Lily Janik of uh, San Francisco Chronicle. You both started within about a year of each other, Lily in 2016 and Jesse in 2017. Not started covering theater, but started at those at those posts. We're, lucky, we're fortunate to have you here to talk about it's crazy time we've been through together. If you all could turn on your cameras and join us today. Jesse, Lily, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Hi, Lily. Hello. I realize we have not, you two have not met before. I think I've met, have we met in person, Lily? I don't think we've only ever talked on the phone. Only on the phone, I think. Yeah, all right. So, and I guess this might be our first Zoom together. So, hello. It's good to see both of you. Um, it's been a strange... <laughs> It's been a strange couple of years, really. I've been I've been in a space where if I've tried to think about it, is it 18 months? It's, it's more than 18 months now, and that's 20 months. Eventually, we'll be able to say, we'll be able to say two years of this. Um, 
But but let, let's look back. We're looking back specifically at this year, which I think some people entered with some hope. And I think we entered the summer with a bit of hope. I certainly, I did some traveling, trying to see theater around, at least outdoor theater. Um, I just want to just check in with both of you in turn, how this, we can't say an emergence, for, we can't say it's post-pandemic. We can't say that yet. We're, we're still mid-pandemic, but in-person theater has returned. Something like the old beat that you were on has returned. Could you talk a little bit about how this past year has been for you, both personally, professionally, and how, how writing about theater feels different and doesn't feel different? Um, Lily, why don't, you, why don't you start? Tell us, tell us how it's been. Oh. Well, one thing I'll say is that um, so theater people are generally always pretty nice to me as a critic. Uh, they feel they have to be, of course, um, which is a dynamic I'm very conscious of. But uh, sorry to use the phrase now more than ever. I, <laughs> that, that phrase always makes me laugh. But um, I hear them thanking me just kind of for still existing and continuing to cover them. And uh, that is very welcome, of course, but it also um, maybe just because of my own messed up psychology, I feel a lot of pressure because of that to tell their stories accurately and well and make sure the world remembers them, especially when in that era when so much of society was reopening, but theater workers couldn't go back to work yet. So that, that has been a lot of pressure. And I was also, um, in thinking about reviewing shows, <clears throat> there was a moment when I wondered if criticizing any piece at all was in poor taste, almost like um, speaking ill of the dead, like, why would you do that at this horrible, horrible time? And then I, I kind of came around to, um, well, if you want theater to be strong again, it has to be able to withstand fair critique. So that, that's been a dynamic. Um, I also uh, have found myself having to cover much more of the arts world. I've written movie reviews. Um, I had to compile a little tribute when um, for Shock G, the rapper, who um, I didn't I didn't know who that person was. Um, ju just as so many um, arts writers at the Chronicle have gotten transferred to other desks to help cover the pandemic. Um, I have a breaking news day now every week, which is uh, today actually. Uh, I hope my editors don't have a story they need me to write right now. Uh, <laughs> but so it, it's it's been a very uh, different world for me. What's it been like for you, Jesse? Well, can I get some of that niceness traffic you were talking about? Oh, well, that, that, I mean, not hardly my universal, way. hardly <laughs> universal, I promise. Yeah, well, and, and, and you bring up so many things that I feel too. Um, you know, and, and with Sondheim's death as an example, I had to write the review of Company within three weeks of his death, and I, I didn't like it. Um, so that was a problem, and people weren't happy. But, you know, that just goes with the territory. I'm not really complaining, but I think there is this feeling now, more than ever, 
that, um, <laughs> that uh, you know, you want to be supportive of the return and also of the new kinds of work that we've been calling for for years and that maybe are beginning to be seen in at least uh, on Broadway more than had been in the past. And yet, on the other hand, you want to, you know, you don't want to be grading on a curve. It's condescending to do that. And it's also not going to help grow the things we want to grow. So I'm having a lot of the same conflicts you're talking about. But I, I also had a lot of exuberance uh, coming back into the theater after, you know, you mentioned, Rob, about, you know, is it 20 months? or I mean, it's like with a baby, like at some point you stop doing the months and you spend <laughs> years. Um, and I, I hope we don't get, you know, to the to the terrible fives or whatever they use. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but, you know, by January, I was like, OK, I, I support streaming theater. I think it's, you know, as Jr. was saying, it's it's really important as a, a, a way to open up the platform to a lot more people, both as creators and as uh, partakers in the theater, whether for mobility issues or financial issues or just a feeling of not being welcome issues. All those things are terribly important. But I really, honestly, I was just sick of lying on my couch uh, <laughs> with the laptop. You know, I just so when things started to uh, open up live again, I did feel, you know, maybe it was a slightly irrational exuberance. But th the other thing I want to say is that I, I have found myself to be more tolerant of things that maybe have what I would consider dramatic or structural problems, but that speak to the moment in a way I want to hear right now, and much less tolerant of irrelevant trash. Um, I mean, I was never <laughs> very tolerant of that, but you could kind of you know, say, well, that's a lark, that's so bad. But now it's like, Diana, I want you to close. And, and they can <laughs> That's divisive words, man. <laughs> Is someone here going to stand up for Diana? No, not not me. No, I, I did. I, I confess. I confess. I did not see it. I don't know if I'm the demographic. You know, uh, it does seem to have a lot of fans on Twitter, as you might have noticed. Well, everything has a lot of fans on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the problem with Twitter. I mean, but but that's another. Subject. That's another. Thing. <laughs> I was going to ask a question, but I want to let Lily, I think Lily had something to say on the Diana point. Um, you know, I've, I've said my, my piece on, on Diana. Um, I, I, uh, I feel ashamed for being a fan. Um, I, so I not only wrote my like review, I then wrote my column thereafter about being ashamed of my review. So I, I feel like I've. You've, you've done the Diana discourse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> We'll, we'll put it behind us, shall we? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, as we're, as we're talking about kind of the value of the work that's put on stage, uh, we've had this, like, basically two years of a push for more equity on our stages and more diversity on our stages. So I'm curious for both of you, has that, has that call from the field in general changed how you look at the work? And especially as you, I'm sure you all get seasons announcements in your email, in email inbox like we do. Does it change how you see how a season's planned out or what directors are working on what or who actually ends up on stage? I think we're going to have different answers because of the kinds of things we mostly cover. I'd like, Lily, you want to go ahead? 
Um, one thing I've just noticed in myself, and this has been um, longer, a longer arc is if um, a show had been announced with an all white cast and an all white creative team, even, I don't know, five years ago, um, just throwing out a ballpark number, I might not have noticed. My brain might've registered that as default. Now, if I were to see that, I would have a lot of questions um, and it would not register as default as all. So that's just one metric. And I um, believe that would deeply inform how I would then go review the show as well. Uh, I'll talk about Broadway a little bit since that's a lot of what I cover um, for better or worse. It was thrilling to see those shows being announced one after another, uh, plays uh, by authors who for once were not just, uh, you know, uniformly white or were in fact black or other non, other people of color. And, and yet at the same time, the, you know, you know, a third of Broadway shows succeed. That is to say two thirds fail uh, just financially or some figure like that. And then another half of what's left are just bad. I mean, that's just the way it goes. So that's you know, a lot of fractions there. I love that. Like, yeah, I'm sorry, my math is gone. <laughs> I, I think I'm left with uh, a 16th. I'm not sure, but the uh, what that means is that you, you can't set the expectations based on one season. Uh, that these shows have to carry the weight forever of proving that there's an audience uh, and there's the quality and uh, the kind of buzz that uh, would make something successful commercially. And I, my big fear has been that they would come and go and not change anything after the first, you know, four months of that. And I'm still kind of worried about that, although... Um, the, the fact that there was such a variety of these shows, they weren't one genre, is a hopeful sign. So you had a what looks to be like a potentially hit comedy in Clyde's, um, you know, with a star, you know, a pretty big television star like that. That's on one end. And then, and then you have a, a first time Broadway production of a much older play, Trouble in Mind, that's, uh, a, you know, a, a wonderful production. Uh, but at a, at the very at a very different end of the spectrum, and then you have um, you know chicken and biscuits, a kind of family comedy. So I'm hoping that this variety suggests that that there are there's not just one way forward uh, with continuing to diversify what is seen in commercial theater. Uh, I still do have my doubts, and I also want to say one other thing: it's not just about the race of the authors that that's been exciting. It's also the genres of the work, so that something that really thrilled me to see happening on Broadway this fall. And honestly, a year ago, I would have said, and in fact, I did say to the producer, you're out of your mind, uh, were the off-Broadway productions that moved uptown of uh, Dana H., the play by Lucas Nath, and Is This a Room by Tina Satter, which, you know, five years ago, as you were saying, Lily, I mean, they wouldn't even have been at the Vineyard or, you know, at a major off-Broadway. They'd have been just, they'd been in, they'd have been in Queens, basically. And, and now there they were on Broadway. Okay, they didn't make money. 
All right, but you know, maybe it's the thin edge of the wedge, you know, acculturating people to different ways of experiencing theater. So I, that, I still found that really exciting. I'm curious, like, as you talk about these productions that don't usually get seen on Broadway, Jesse, uh, I'm curious, because there's this idea around criticism, especially at both of your posts, that it can make or break a show in some ways, and that there's a lot riding on whether or not critic XYZ likes this show. But there's also the unnatural, like, pressure on these shows to succeed or we'll never see them again. So I'm curious, like how that weighs on you as you're going to these productions and how you're you're wrestling with that in your minds. Well, Lily, I, I've been wanting to ask you, do you feel that power in San Francisco? First of all, as as a premise, I mean, can you kill a show? Can you help a show rise that might not otherwise? So I am the only full time theater critic in the San Francisco Bay Area. So that alone gives me a certain power. But I do hear conflicting reports from different producers. Some people tell me, yes, absolutely. The Chronicle still makes or breaks a show. Others have told me that the paper's influence has declined over time. So um, I, I, and maybe uh, some of those remarks are not given in good faith. I'm not sure. Um, So I, the pressure certainly weighs on me. Um, you know, I am a second or third market compared to you. Um, sometimes, you know, I'm seeing a world premiere that then goes on to have longer life in New York. But with a lot of these bigger shows, um, Jesse Green has already given his verdict. And then I'm um, giving mine maybe one or two years later. So it's a slightly different situation in that way. I, I um, for, for one thing, I, I have to, re- I wish I could just tell producers, you know, critics are not boosters for the industry. I mean, because the expectation that we're not doing our job if we criticize is somewhat backward. <laughs> I see you understand that, Lily, or I've felt it. On the other hand, as you say, uh, there are times you know, when you genuinely feel the wish to boost the industry. But uh, in the end, as I sit there writing in response to something, it's what happens first is, you know, I cannot, I want to say something nice, I can't find the nice thing to say. So I have to listen to that. Um, And I, I would say that the, what we said before, the way to support theater now as a critic is to be uh, enthusiastic about change, but still critical about what comes before us. One thing I wish producers really understood is that when we get to write a positive or mostly positive review, it is like the best thing ever. And it is also specifically a relief. Like, oh, I don't have to criticize anyone today. Oh my God, my life is so easy because I know they imagine us 
sitting there at our computers, evilly typing. <laughs> I love criticizing this show so, but that is just not my experience. Oh, it's a little bit my experience. <laughs> I mean, not often, but when, I, I can't lie. I, you know, if something's really terrible, I get a little bit of uh, of a thrill. I mean, I, there's certain well, okay. I get to do that are usually off off limits. If it's terrible and its intentions are bad. Yes, that's right. It's about the cynicism of certain shows. That's what drives me crazy. Brand extensions that have no purpose in life, you know, or things that are obviously just, uh, you know, money grabs um, or that have been kind of Frankensteined up from nothing uh, by people who don't know what they're doing. Those things drive me crazy. Uh, but, but most of the time, Lily, I, I do feel what you're talking about. Isn't it true? I mean, I, I know I've I applied my trade a little bit as a critic as well and have over the years. And I know JR as well. Um, that writing those raves, though, can be hard. And it just like as, as a craft thing to like say nice things. Not, not that it's hard to say nice things about things, although maybe that maybe that's an issue, too. But just to find something, find a way to write about it that doesn't sound like you're crazy <laughs> or that that you're in the tank for the show or that, you know, find something intelligent to say other than just go see it. It's great. I, I, I often feel when I'm giving a rave, like I just sound like I love this and I also love this and this <laughs> too. Wow, wow, wow. I'm just at the stage door asking for an autograph. And that that feels a little silly. So yeah, I I I've there's certain words I've retired from my vocabulary. Which uh, ones? Tell me, tell well, us. Well, they're in two different categories. There's the, the words that go in those sorts of reviews, like lovely. Um, but also there's like the old nerdy academic vocabulary stuck in the back of my head. Like, indeed, I just like, I've gradually tried to root that out of my writing. Um, but, uh, but to what Rob was saying, you know, what I, what interests me. And when we, when I first got this job, I talked to you about this. Um, what interests me, whether a play is great or terrible or in between is what is the argument it's trying to make. And, uh, you know, is that a worthy argument to be making? And does it do it well? And, and, and that holds me in good stead when I feel like I'm just going to, you know, become a fanboy. Um, I just try to focus on, you know, not how I felt, but what I was learning um, or being challenged to think about. And uh, that's useful. Um, I wanted to ask you just both, so you get asked this kind of question, and you, I'm sure you've done your top 10 lists or whatever you have to do at the end of the year this isn't so much a top top two question but just sort of but it could be this could be your two 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 shows or experiences uh that were your sort of that typified the year for you that that's and you know whatever they whatever they were whatever they signified to you um because lily why don't you do one and you do one jesse will do two each so I, uh, for this question, picked yeah. shows that are not on my top 10 list, which indeed I just filed the other day. So this is a great little Lily's brain all in one place this week. Um, but one was an online play, believe it or not. Um, it's uh, Communion by Christopher Chen at ACT. And I thought that this show did such a good job existing within and playing with the constraints of Zoom. Um, 
I, I don't want to give too much away because there's like a huge ginormous reveal, but um, all the little buttons you press and that we see at the bottom of our screen right now, um, record or not, participants, chat, all of these things um, became a part of the show and made me question what was real and what wasn't and what the actor who appeared to just be being herself, Stacey Ross, the actor I know um, here in the Bay Area, like she seemed to be talking about her real life, but was she? And was she really talking to us right now? I still don't know. And I wound up talking to uh, Christopher Chen, the playwright afterwards, just the two of us. And that conversation made me feel like the play was still happening the way he talked about his, his own work. And so now I, I don't know what was real even more. Um, every conversation for a little while felt like a kind of inception, uh, meta questioning of itself. So uh, be careful when you talk to Chris Chen. Right. The play is still happening, Lily. You didn't know. Yeah, exactly. This is it. This is actually it right now. <laughs> Jesse, how about you? Well, uh, I, I should say, despite what I said earlier about growing tired of um, virtual theater, you know, obviously, since that's what I did watch for most or at least half of the year, some of my great experiences this year were virtual and I would continue to treasure them even, you know, now that live theater is returning. Um, and I and I included uh, a separate item in my top 10 list to list a bunch of them. Unfortunately, you can't point readers to most of them anymore because they're gone. Uh, so uh, I'd be looking uh, in line with what JR was saying earlier, not just for simulcasts, which are great, but also ways that people can continue to be able to access these things later, which is often not the case. Anyway, but to, to answer the question, you know, I, I, I'll go back to Trouble in Mind, the Alice Childress play that uh, had its first Broadway production. Finally, it, it, you know, it has a famous history of having been uh, supposed to go to Broadway many, many years ago, but the producers wanted her to change the ending and she wouldn't do it. And so the financing fell apart and it never happened. And somehow the combination of that story behind it and what the play itself is about, which is about a, a black actress who is, you know, pretty much tired of playing roles uh, that a black actress of that period could get, which hilariously in this play are, you know, she calls them, they're, they're either named for flowers or for gemstones, you know, so, um, and it's a comedy, but it becomes, first of all, it addresses our moment beautifully. Uh, and I mean specifically the theatrical moment, which is, you know, to say what, what is the difference between power imbalances in the theater and racism? Is there any difference between those two things? And it, it you know, it kind of strongly argues that they are the same thing. Uh, but, but it's not didactic. And a lot of the plays we are getting now on, um, you know, that are diversifying the theatrical offerings are very much oriented toward a lesson or, uh, you know, a, a kind of one-to-one -one correspondence between the real world and the theatrical world. And this play does not do that. 
It gets very confusing and metaphysical in the last part. And it's about her struggle to understand these issues, which I found very powerful because I think we're all struggling to understand these issues. And if we're not struggling, or I'll just say this for myself as a white person, if I'm not struggling to understand these issues, then, then I'm not paying enough attention. Ken, I just wanna add that you're, remark about your own criticism that you're interested in what a play argues. Um, that really kind of crystallized for me, maybe how we might approach our work differently because I don't know if that is a question I return to very often and I'm, when I'm writing my reviews, I often feel as if I am trying to locate something within my own body that I'm feeling. Um, and describe what is unique about that very particular feeling that this show gave me. Um, and you were contrasting that with, you know, your effort to avoid sounding like a fanboy. Um, and the, I don't know, I, I'm just sharing that because this is illuminating for me. I, I don't know if I totally realized I do that. Um, but but I, it, sorry. Hmm. No, no. But, but, but can't they be seen as sort of like the method acting question? I mean, like two different ways of accessing one from the outside and one from the inside, you know, because I also do exactly what you described, but I'm doing that to try to locate myself in the uh, effort of the play to push me around. Well, um, I, I get what you're saying. Let me with. I'll, I'll use my next like play of 2021 as an example, um, because this is an out. So this theater company, they're called We Players and they specialize even before the pandemic, like since 2001, I think they were founded in doing outdoor shows, uh, site specific at local state and national parks. So uh, this one was um, it's called psychopomp, which is a word I didn't know before uh, covering the show, but a psychopomp is a messenger or ferryman or guide sort of between the spirit world and our world. And many different cultures have versions of these figures. And so in this park here in the city, we were going around one-on-one uh, -on -one, or if you had another person in your party, uh, to meet different psychopumps. Um, like maybe you'd see one on the other side of a hill or popping out from behind a tree. And I don't know if I necessarily felt that show was arguing something, but it did inspire in me the feeling like I was Alice in Wonderland. And it just gave my life a little bit of magic in a very unmagical time. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow that as my new way of operating. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, well, and my other the other show I'll talk about kind of gets at that in a very different way. I mean, obviously, I, I and the first big musical to reopen uh, Broadway was Six, the one about the wives of Henry VIII, and. Um, you know, and it was kind of a bookend experience for me because the day that the theaters in New York were shut down was the opening night of that show. And I had written the review and it was the front page. 
And then we, at the at 5 p.m., we had to tear the page open and, you know, promote a very large photograph of something from inside. I, I don't remember what happened, but, um, and then I, you know, and then to come back and see that. So I, I, I don't know whether it was irrational, but uh, I was exuberant at the uh, live liveness of that show. And yeah, you can argue all kinds of things about, you know, it's historicity and, and all of that, but that's an example of, you know, a, more of a purely feeling situation. It has an argument actually, and I talked about it in my review, but mostly it's what I, you know, one of the things we love in musical theater, which is to be just sort of dragged somewhere into your feelings, largely based on music and performance that doesn't have that doesn't have a name otherwise because if it did it would just be a play and uh so that that's the other end of my experience this year was was that musical i'm interested that you keep using the word irrational before the word exuberance i wonder if exuberance can ever not be irrational in the jesse green landscape thank you doctor i will give that I, I, I was going to say, at, at, at this moment, Lily, it feels like exuberance feels irrational, too. Um, mm, yeah. Can we talk about what's happening in New York right now? I know uh, this is off script. I know this was one of the questions. Go off script. Go there. Every day, so many yeah. shows are having to cancel their performances. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, last night at Moulin Rouge, they canceled the show after the audience was seated. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's now enough of a phenomenon that we can, you know, that there's just lists of them each day uh, of, well, of the shows that last night didn't perform. Aside from the way it's screwing up schedules for critics, that's the least important aspect of it. Um, you know, people who are choosing to come out to see these shows and have made a big event out of it, it's very hard on them. And of course, it's very hard on the performers because they, they want to perform. I'm happy to say that currently they're all being paid regardless. I don't know how long that's going to last, though, if this, if this is the new status quo, um, where you're only going to end up with five, an average of maybe five shows a week. They don't, a lot of the shows don't have enough understudies and swings at this point. That's another huge expense if they go there. Uh, it's It's... It's it's very unclear what the next few months are like this this winter especially, and I am I am very concerned. It's a good point, Lily. Yeah, uh, we haven't had a spate of cancellations yet here, but I just saw that one happened in Los Angeles last night. I I don't know. I, I don't I don't want to sound like irresponsible on this podcast or be like fear mongery, but. I, uh, I'm just honestly expressing my own subjective worry here. But I would say the thing to, to note regarding that is these cancellations are happening to protect people. Right. And they have been successful in protecting people, both backstage yeah. uh, and in the audience. And in most cases, these are positive tests that are not connected to symptomatic uh, expressions of the disease. Um, but they're, you know, out of an abundance of caution, as the phrase goes. Uh, and I'm grateful that, that they're doing that and the producers are taking a huge hit on this. But I don't know how sustainable it is. I feel safe when I go to the theater. 
Um, and I'm, I'm a scaredy cat, you know, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm living up here in the woods where the only thing I'm going to get is some kind of turkey disease, but, um, <laughs> can that be the pull quote from this? <laughs> I just realized I'm, I'm about to get arrested by the S. <laughs> anyway, uh, I mean, yeah, I was just going to say, like, as we're talking about worries for the upcoming year and like concerns about the upcoming year, I'd also love to hear what both of you are looking forward to next year. I know it's hopefully going to continue to happen and these these uh, outbreaks don't continue uh, within our community. I know I am also worried about those things happening here in Chicago, where I have yet to be in any house that was socially distanced. It was just, they're just packed houses. Um so, it, are they, are they, do they require masks, JR? Require masks and vaccines, thankfully. Okay. But uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you all are looking forward to or at least hoping for next year. Uh, Lily? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, um, I am so stoked for Sean San Jose at the Magic Theater. Um, this guy is. Bay Area, a Bay Area homeboy. Um, he's a brilliant actor. Um, and then also he's just, leaders can have like a certain personality. I don't want to name any names. Um, it's, there's like a, a distance between them and they, they probably have to cultivate that distance as a survival mechanism. But Sean is just, the warmest, most genuine person. And I'm really excited for the ways he reimagines what a nonprofit theater can be, like subscriptions, seasons. He um, told me all those things are up for grabs. Um, they're not necessarily going to continue. Maybe a lot of artistic directors say things like that, but with Sean, I... I actually believe it. He's already incorporating poetry and music and film into what um, the magic is offering. And I just couldn't be more excited to cover it. Also, when I moved to San Francisco in 2009, I'm one of those people who's so obsessed with Sam Shepard that like my first steps into the magic theater which is now even in a different building from when he was there. But, but still I was, it was like stepping on hollowed ground for me. So, yay. Lily, this is reminding me, it's not what I meant to say at all, but when you talk about the magic theater, one of these news stories that has a critical component that I'm really interested in seeing how it plays out is has to do with the Williamstown theater festival, which, um, you know, basically had a terrible pandemic, both in terms of what they were able to produce and how they did it, but also complaints from uh, workers uh, on shows that they were being, uh, you know, worked to death uh, outdoors in the rain with electric equipment. And uh, a long time problem there with the uh, internship program, which, you know, people are either not paid or paid poorly or have to pay to you know, work unbelievable hours. I myself was an intern there many years ago, so I know that it's true. But in, in the old, in, in ye olden days, we had this idea that that was just part of how you made your way in the theater. And the theater was a 
tough business and you had to pay your dues. And now people are asking, yeah, but do you? I mean, do you have to pay them that way? And um, so they've, um, the, the former artistic director has uh, stepped down. Uh, Jenny Gersten, who had been the artistic director for a while, is coming in as in a pro tem basis to basically with the, with the mission to remake the whole thing. Um, and I just, I just would like to see, is that, can you do it? And can you produce at the level that you were able to produce when you had tons of free labor? Um, uh, so it's, it's not quite, and it's not purely an aesthetic response to the question, but it's, it's yeah. a story I'm really interested in. We're, we're very interested in that, in that theater, also Actors Theater of Louisville and their Humana Festival. They also, I think, have entered their intern program. And we're very curious how a Humana Festival could even happen without all the, it wasn't free labor. By the end, they were paying a stipend, but they were also notoriously, there was, there was meetings they would have to tell new interns how to get food stamps because it was such a, such a penurious existence. But yeah, so we're looking forward to better than that. Um, uh, we're almost we're getting close to time here, and I just wanted to end with a you know something pos hopefully warm and festive uh, about the holidays that we're about to head into the holiday season at least. I know Hanukkah's over, but there's 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 still you know the Christian holidays and and other other things and hopefully hopefully some gatherings and and uh, time off. And I think we all want to get on this, Jr. I hope you have an answer for this. Um, basically, is there is there a holiday ritual you want to tell us about a family ritual? Uh, uh, if it's related to theater, so much the better. Um, I will save mine for last, but I want to go around. JR, what, what do you have a holiday ritual that you uh, want to tell us about? Uh, our family doesn't do too many. We all gather in Indianapolis, which is my hometown, with uh, my grandmother, and we, we spend the holiday together. Uh, we do, my mother will usually just let uh, It's a Wonderful Life run on TV because uh, it'll just run on repeat on whatever channel and we'll just leave it on. Uh, so it was nice. She's in Chicago right now, and I had a chance to take her to the live radio show version of It's a Wonderful Life last night. So I don't know. That might be a tradition, but uh, yeah, that's about all I got. Uh, I'll toss it to Jesse to see what he's got. Well, does does Carolina change count as a holiday tradition? The crucial, the the scene in which the, the uh, crux of the drama takes place is a Hanukkah dinner. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, if you know the show, you know what I'm talking about, but basically all of the different avenues of conflict, both uh, interpersonal and argumentative, um, yes. <laughs> come into play in that scene. And in this current production that only is on Broadway for a little bit longer, it's brilliantly staged. Uh, and I listen to that a lot on my, hmm. uh, you know, on from the cast album. And there's a new cast album from this production that's coming out uh, very soon. But that's as close as I get, other than, again, with the turkeys. What can I say? <laughs> I know. I, I've got Janine told me that the one thing she contributed to the writing of that, Janine Tesori, who wrote the music for that, was basically the book is all, the libretto is all Tony Kushner, but the one note she had, partly as, as a Christian herself, but also just thinking about the, the, the mother, was that the timing of it, you know, JFK's assassination is in it in no, around November. That Christmas would 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 weigh on Caroline's mind, just as much as Hanukkah weighs on the you know the the family. Uh, that uh, so the, yeah. the, the the way that those holidays sort of interweave. There's definitely some Christmas pastiche in there as well. Um, anyway, just had to put that note in there. Lily, what 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 about you? 
also a big it's a wonderful life girl like i my uh, grandparents have died within the past few years but when we when my family watches we even note here are the points when grandpa laughed here's the point when grandma would remind us that donna reed was born in iowa just like her (laughs) i've i've got like the whole ass script i'm actually now thinking i should do something on maybe next year like why it bothers me that a christmas carol is um like our our main holiday or christmas story that we tell i've i've got something cooking i've i've been thinking about this a lot it's not just going to be like oh it's it's hokey and it's overdone i've I got, some thoughts. I got some thoughts. So Wait, you, have get, you have an argument, Lily? You have an argument. Yeah, I was going to say. No, I just have feelings. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have feelings in my body. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was just going to say one, one of the only rituals that we, the, the film we watch over and over besides the mystery science theater, Santa Claus um, and a couple other, they do a couple other holiday films that my kids love to watch them take apart um is emma otter's jug band christmas that's when we watch uh unironically and with love and sometimes doze off at but i just love that jim henson special from 78 77 whatever it was it's been turned into a live musical which i'm taking my family to tomorrow so at the new victory theater some new songs by paul williams and some puppets and i you know i don't think it can match the, the grandeur of the of the original tv special but it's a live version and you know Talk about a brand extension. I don't know if we need it or not, but it's a it's a way to see it live. Like it's a wonderful life. Um, and this is not quite live. I was going to say the thing I was looking forward to in the coming year was to see Jr. in person at some point. Jr. is in Chicago. I'm here in New York. We're the staff of American Theater right here, and we don't work in an office. Um, this is as close as we get. But it's also been good to be close with in that way with you, Jesse and Lily today. Have this conversation. There will be a new year. <laughs> hopefully a happy one. Um, I really appreciate your time today and I hope to see you at the theater or the virtual theater in the coming year. Take care, everybody. It's been a happy pleasure. Holiday. Happy ho-hos. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Thanks, JR. And nice to meet you, Lily. Likewise. Have fun. <laughs>